0: And welcome to um, the IEEE PELS podcast series. Today um, on the show, we have Dr. Uday Deshpande, who is currently a CTO of DNV Electronics, basically a maker of special test equipment used in the automotive industry as well as military and defense applications for testing electrical systems and EV components. Just to give you an idea, Dr. Deshpande is not new to the IEEE; he's been an active member of the IEEE. PELS as well as industry application societies. Um, he's organized several, uh, uh, he's part of several organizing committees as well as steering committees, um, including being general co chair of the IEEE ECCE 2011 conference. So, welcome to the show, Day. Nice to have you. Thank you. Um, with us today, of course, uh, my partners, the usual, uh, Dr. Prasad Anjati, who's a professor, a TI professor at Texas a uh, and University in College Station, Texas, as well as uh, in the background, we have uh, yeah. Megan Chehoki, who basically makes sure everything goes smoothly. So without further ado, let's uh, dive straight in, Oday. Um, so Tell us a little bit about your company, DNV Electronics, and, and w- what do you guys do? Can you give us an idea? Uh,
1: sure. Uh, thank you, Sheldon, thank you, Prasad, and thank you, Megan, for having me on. We uh, really look forward to the conversation. Um, to answer your question briefly, uh, DNV Electronics uh, essentially focuses on test equipment. Uh, two broad groups uh, within the company, one that focuses on test equipments around equipment around rotating equipment, uh, Rhino based equipment that are used for uh, electric powertrain testers, for example, or e axle testers, or even just motor testers, but also specializing into specifically things like belt starter alternator testers, right? And the other group focuses a lot more on emulators, so power electronics emulators that are used for uh, uh, testing inverters, a uh, lot of automotive applications, but also uh, DC emulators that are used in. Uh, testing general electrical loads, um, quite a lot of applications currently in the aerospace world. So, uh, small company, but a very specialized set of equipment. Excellent.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you've been on both sides of the table, like the OEM leaders, the tier 1, 2 suppliers. Uh, Can you provide some thoughts as you consider both sides of the coin, you know, what should OEM be looking for and what should suppliers be aware of as far as the testing needs are concerned?
1: Sure, Prasad. Uh, So let me give a little bit of a background um, uh, quickly. So two things are happening largely around electrification, and I will just focus a little bit on that because otherwise the question becomes really broad. So electrification is shifting some things to where things are becoming more electromechanical and in some ways more specialized. Uh, As you know, um, the kinds of uh, inverters, the power electronic devices, the switches that we're talking about today are fairly fairly new, fairly advanced uh, and provide a very different um, capabilities and thereby drives very different kind of needs. Similarly, if you start looking at motors, and now we're, we're getting into high power dense motors, uh, motors that are operating at higher frequencies, higher speeds, uh, to try to gain uh, the maximum utilization out of a certain package size, whether it be for EV applications or even industrial applications. So the, the, the structure from my perspective, my own experience as well, has changed that where it has becoming or driving probably a lot more partnership. So it used to be possible for an OEM to be vertically integrated, so to speak, to have capabilities across the board, uh, completely internally. Uh, as these technologies become more and more specialized, the need for partnerships is becoming, in my opinion, more and more uh, critical. So okay. from an OEM perspective, uh, how to engage with a tier one supplier or a preferred partner um, in light of technology, uh, to maintain the the um, uh, IP, to maintain the uniqueness that they want to be able to get them a, uh, uh, an edge in the market. And then from a supplier or a tier one side, somewhat similar because they come in with the specialties uh, of the technology that they want to make sure that uh, get used, but they want to protect their own uh, sort of business as well as be partners with the OEM. So, more and more, I think OEMs, as they look at it, have to become um, more clear about what is it that they really want to do, what they want to control, what they want to partner with. Suppliers have to recognize that it's a, it's becoming a more of a, almost a co-development in some cases, and so the yeah. engagement need to start getting into into that shape. Now, what specifically does it mean for OEMs? OEMs have to be able to provide requirements and information in a very or sufficiently detailed manner. Suppliers have to be a lot more aware of the end application. So if I'm designing an inverter or if I'm designing a motor, it's not enough that I design an inverter or a motor. If it's going into a traction application, then I need to understand that. If it's going into an industrial application, I need to understand that. If it's going into a very a unique, specialized environment, I need to understand that. So domain knowledge becomes more critical for the suppliers, and uh, technology knowledge becomes more critical for the OEMs. So hopefully it gives a flavor of the changes that OEMs and suppliers have to deal with as we are getting into the technologies. So in the middle of all that is DNV electronics, right?
2: Trying to match both
1: of them. We'd like to think so, for sure, because uh, when you have these, how do you test this? Uh, how, how does a how does a component get tested and integrated, and how does the OEM ensure that the component is is going to meet the requirements that they have? So testing starts becoming becoming very critical, and more so. Uh, you might have heard the term shift left in testing. It, it was traditionally used for software development, uh, where the idea is that you start um, testing as early as possible. Sometimes some people say that even you start testing out the requirements for their uh, viability. So instead of waiting till everything is done and you do the testing at the end, the idea is to test the shifting left so you're able to test at a component level or a module level or subsystem level, a system level all the way to the final uh, vehicle or or product level. So uh, now testing becomes a lot more of a continuum in some ways so that you're able to ensure that if I test the component, satisfies it completely so that the next level module testing could be um, complemented and you don't have to repeat testing and so on so mm-hmm. that your testing is equally distributed shifting all the way to the left uh, to the design stage okay thanks
0: okay well um i have a question today just as a follow-up um i know you gave a very broad overview of testing and where dnb electronics stands and and i know you take pride in component testing and you know as you mentioned, testing ahead of time. Um, In terms of specifically electrification, in the field of electrification, what have you been seeing as a company, as an individual? What have you been seeing in terms of testing in just the field of electrification? And let me maybe frame that a little bit more specifically. Like, do you focus, for example, on testing the different subsystems of a powertrain, let's say? Or do you test the powertrain as an integrated system? and if so what is the difference if you could just give us an idea because many many of the of us who are engineers in the powertrain business uh you know look at it differently and there's confusion at at times as well so what is the best approach and what's the difference between testing different subsystems of a powertrain or testing the powertrain as a whole
1: sure so i'll take a quick step back and make sure we're talking to so, powertrain has got broadly speaking three components right an electric powertrain in particular then you've got a motor yeah uh, maybe gearbox or a transmission and uh-huh. the inverter that drives the motor right sure. the inverter obviously has the hardware component and then the whole power electronics component and we'll say right. that this um, module or subsystem is standalone meaning it can be completely tested on its own Merit without requiring, um, let's say, um, uh, inputs from the accelerator or inputs from anything else. Right? Now, the you can, of course, test as a whole, and you should test as a whole. That is the final round of testing that happens. But right. take the approach that nothing gets tested until everything is plugged together and you run the test. You're just opening up a can of worms that can set the program back a lot, both in terms of time and money, because if something goes wrong in this combined uh, module, it's very difficult to know exactly what the root causes. Was it the inverter? Was it the software in the inverter? Was it the hardware? Was it a secondary effect because of something that was not right in the transmission, and so on and so forth? Mm -hmm. So to make sure that you build up the maturity of the testing so that when you come to the final product, you are doing a lot more of a verification rather than a validation, Um, It is important to test at a component level as well. So Mm -hmm. you've broken down the requirements from the power train to say the motor has to be capable of providing this, whether it's torque speed characteristics, power levels, efficiency maps and so on. So you should be able to test the motor to know that the design of the motor is capable of providing uh, the required performance. Right. Similarly, on the inverter. You have to be able to test the inverter to make sure that it's operating the way it's supposed to, the controls are doing what it needs to do, and um, provide the performance that, that, that you are expecting. And then they have to be combined together because at the end of yeah. the day, the final product is a combination. But now you have come into the combined product knowing that the inverter is doing what you expect it to do, knowing that the motor is doing what it's expected to do, motor gearbox or motor transmission type test and then you run the whole thing together and say like, yep the performance is what we expected
0: uh, right and so maybe at uh, the subsystem level also maybe there's also a tolerance band i'm sure you guys test for within Absolutely. like like considering that the powertrain eventually will be an integrated system that tolerance ban from your experience is possible i think you guys already take care of that is that uh,
1: uh, correct to assume Correct. So so the the basic tenet that you then follow is a systems engineering approach, right? The end right. of the day, you need this system, not just the inverter or not just the motor, right? So you want the performance out of the system. You break down or decompose the requirements of that system into its component. So you say that hey, the motor should be capable of producing this kind of power, this kind of torque, this kind of speed, and so on. So that's right. the expectation out of the motor. Uh, yeah. Along with the other uh, parameters, right? How you take the heat out, what efficiency do you want, and so on and so forth, become the mm-hmm. functional and non-functional requirements of the components. So right. because these component requirements are derived from the system requirements, you 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 work to ensure that if the component meets their requirements, the system should meet its requirements. Right. I'll, I'll use the word 95% coverage from that perspective, right? You will need some things that you cannot test on the motor alone or the inverter alone. You need the combined package to, conduct, to finalize it. Absolutely. And that's what you do. So you, uh, you, you you test the inverter on its own, and uh, now you have the mm-hmm. emulators that help um, do that. Or you can have motors as well to, to uh, use for testing the inverter. You test the motor on a dyno. Uh, it, of course, all the simulation and uh, analysis that you do beforehand, all of this helps to build up the confidence and reduce the risk in performance of the components so that by the time you put them all together, you're already 90 plus percent confident that, yes, this is going to meet the, the overall requirements. Sure. And Interesting. With the um, full package there. Excellent. Wow. Well, makes sense.
2: Thanks, Uday. Oh, there you talked a lot about powertrains uh, and, and, their, and their applications and testing. Can you say uh, what are some of the other major technical projects that you have completed in DNV and what major
1: uh, in the upcoming projects are you engaged uh, in in DNV? Let, let me actually take a step back, uh, Prasad, if you don't mind, and I'll talk about some of the non-DNV projects uh, that 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 uh, we've completed, um, partly mm-hmm. because I've been at DNV for about six months, so, so there is not a ton of history. But in this field of electrification over the last uh, almost 25 years, uh, I've done many. Um, mm-hmm. The largest project, which I'm actually very proud of, was the... Uh, was, was the electrical um, electromagnetic aircraft launch system that is okay. now on the new aircraft carriers in the U.S. Navy. Um, this is essentially an electric motor, a linear electric motor that is uh, the the source for um, launching the aircraft, and then the entire power electronics controls and software was yeah. the focus of my my efforts. Um, the other one. From various uh, um, ways, we were looking at electrification in, in tractors and farm equipment and construction equipment, both okay. at um, subsystem levels, maybe at a, just the uh, the bucket controls, for example, or the excavator controls, or all the way to a full electric drive uh, replacing the IC engine in a in a in a tractor. Um, so these were major projects. Um, at the small end was uh, power tools, where um, almost 20 years ago now, we introduced uh, brushless technology into power tools uh, while maintaining cost uh, targets. So from an electrification, if you will, or use of electric machines and uh, electrical uh, solutions into various applications, that's a little bit of my um, history. Yeah. Um, within dnv there there's a couple of other things that perhaps are notable Uh, so you've talked about the dyno and powertrain. so far the other set of applications that we get into is where we are um, uh, we have a product that's called the dc emulator it's a direct current emulator Um, if you think about it it's almost an active power emulator so Mm -hmm. it can emulate a electrical signature of any load that is operating on a bus whether it's a dc bus primarily is what the focus is but uh, potentially AC bus as well uh, not a lot of applications on that yet but you can emulate the load on a DC bus and a very um, widespread use right now of that is actually in the aerospace world so where the, there is a concept called uh, a copper bird where the entire electrical structure can be emulated so as you can as you know uh, in a plane the um, the electrical structure is almost like a distributed grid except Correct. for dc and the dc emulators can mimic everything from a pure electrical signal to electromechanical actuator signals and that would okay. then be um, put up on a bus emulator which is also a dc bus emulator which is which is also the dc emulator that allows you to be the bus and then you can study the effect of these distributed loads um, uh, noise issues um, all kinds of stuff uh, by creating this uh, effective wireframe that allows you to at power, uh, mimic the the physical loads that you are going to expect to see in the actual um, airplane in this case. Okay. So you're able to even uh, mimic the input-output impedances of those uh, loads you're mimicking as well. Correct. As well as the yes, as well as the current profiles.
2: Power
1: mm-hmm. uh, or power profiles. Now, these can be done in two ways. Uh, uh, you, can, you can operate it with a real-time uh, simulator model, like something like a DSpace or a, or a SpeedGoat or an Opel RT real-time simulator. Uh, to then drive the power electronics of the DC emulator, which effectively acts like an amplifier, if you will, a power amplifier that mm-hmm. allows you to then load the, 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 the supply with, uh, with um, real power loads. Yes. Thank you, again.
0: Okay, Uday, I think in terms of the projects you mentioned you completed and, you know, do you see any of those as paradigm shifts that you have led? I mean, and if so, what are the outcomes of those efforts? This Is a follow-up to Prasad's question, actually? Um, you mentioned couple signature projects that you've done, non-DNV as well as DNV. And so which one or couple do you see has made a major paradigm shift in state-of-the-art and and, and and the outcomes of those efforts?
1: Okay. So the one I see that as a fundamental paradigm shift is really the the electrification in, I'm going to call, non-passenger car application.
2: mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'll use I'll use the agricultural equipment as a, as, as one example, but industry right. other industry as well. And the reason I say that is this: those industries, mm-hmm. one hundred and fifty plus year old industries, have historically been very mechanical.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. They're,
1: they're big steel, the criteria was defined by 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 power. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a seven hundred horsepower um, right tractor, the you know, five hundred horsepower tractor. The, Absolutely the farming equipment ranging from 60 right and type stuff yep, right yep 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 um, so when these products are beginning to look at electrification and everything from hybrid um, traction to replacing hydraulics with uh, with electric actuators it's a fundamental paradigm shift in thinking because um, the moment you bring in these electromechanical systems, software becomes a fundamental and critical element of the solution. Right. The reason I say that this is a paradigm shift now is because the software will only do what you tell it to do. Hmm. Right? So if you if you want the software to do what you need it to do, you have to be very precise in what you tell it. Hmm. Which means something as simple as uh, a mechanical actuator responding to let's say a uh, threshold level right so that hey if this uh, uh, arm hits this top do this if it hits the bottom stop do this right which is right. the old old style of uh, operation right that steam actuator is replaced by an electromechanical software control device every single aspect of that operation has to be mapped and told to the software hmm then suddenly the people who are experts who really understand how that uh, piece of equipment operates, historically, they're not software people. And the people who are historically software have got no idea how this piece of equipment operates. Right, absolutely. So the interaction between those two becomes a fundamental paradigm shift. And, and it's, uh, some companies have done it well, quickly. Some companies have evolved over time. And some companies really struggle with it. Mm. And this is probably the biggest paradigm shift uh, that, that I've experienced both actually at Ingersoll Rand and as well as at, um, at the CNA. was uh, to right. make sure that this communication is one, clear and two, the shifting roles are comfortable because now mm. suddenly, let's say if 30 years I've been a mechanical engineer and I have to suddenly start explaining something to, about software and I'm not comfortable with it. It's a very right. tough position for me right so it's it's, uh it's managing that transition making not just the individual person but also the company culture or the group culture shift yeah uh, Yeah. becomes becomes critical and uh, Uh,
0: yeah and i guess also the farmers like the farming equipment itself the users they've been used to a certain type for the last 50 60 years i mean the feel of it it has to be the same like they don't want to see a shift in the feel. Even though it's electrified and more electric, whatever we may call it, or a hybrid, still you want to make
1: them feel at home, right? So that's a big, that's a big challenge in itself. Absolutely, absolutely, that's a really, really good point. But the farmers actually bring about another paradigm shift, really, because again, the old pieces of equipment it was very easy to repair. I mean, even mm. even even for mm-hmm. us, uh, when you think about it; it was easy for us to, you know, repair an old carburetor engine. Correct wheelers or even cars but hmm. today's vehicles are not that simple to repair anymore See, uh, that's correct the same problem you run into in the farm equipment now you run into hmm. that problem for two reasons right one is if there's a large farm in the middle of nowhere and the equipment breaks down uh, in the middle of the planting season uh, hmm. farmers don't have the luxury of waiting for days or even or, or weeks to uh, Get replacement and somebody to come out and fix it. So they need to be able to get it running instantaneously. So the 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 more sophistication the the equipment uh, the vehicles now have because of software or electrical systems and uh, mm-hmm. such, the ability to repair them comes at a, a very different cost because now suddenly. Um, you have to have different sets of tools, you have to have different sets of knowledge, you have to have um, all kinds of other uh, capabilities that historically were not required. That's correct. So it, yeah. Companies balk at it, right? They don't want somebody to go make changes to software. So mm-hmm. now suddenly the ability to repair in the field becomes a very different problem than what it used to be. Right. Some are not software-centric or software-savvy. So when we start looking at it, not just from a development perspective, but also testing and servicing perspective, mm-hmm. it suddenly becomes a you know, completely different paradigm. And so companies have to now um, think about this while they are working on developing it. You can't, you can't rely on the old approaches that, yep, all I need is a screwdriver and a, and a wrench and everything is mm-hmm. good. So. The paradigm shift that is also occurring not just at the design and testing end because of electrification is mm. also happening get the service and uh, repair end, uh, aftermarket. Sure, sure, absolutely. Okay, thanks, Uday. Thanks. So Uday, uh,
2: current, um, you know, shifting gears a little bit to uh, the current time, current turbulent times due to COVID and so on. How do you feel about remote testing and then? Uh, how are you adapting to these new conditions of social distancing,
1: or how, how should one adapt testing, and what is out there um, in, in this in this area of to address the new conditions? Sure. So, um, remote testing by itself, to me, is not new. Um, yeah. The previous companies that I worked at, uh, because of uh, geographically mm-hmm. distributed teams, we actually had set up remote. Test capability meaning uh, somebody sitting in North Carolina could actually connect into the test room in Bangalore and run right. tests. Mm-hmm. Um, now the the um, that was done more as a convenience and as as a good practice that was seen by a company, but you're right. Today's today's systems are changing that to becoming a need rather than a nice to have. Right. Um, so the. The challenge that I see is twofold. So if there's anything that what I'll call low power, um, mm-hmm. not that difficult. Software testing, that's been happening for years, mm-hmm. uh, where remote testing of software has been in place in some shape, form or the other in many companies uh, over the years. Electromechanical systems is where we are beginning to see a bit of a shift. So we get a lot of requests actually nowadays. Um, the, um, so if I have a low power system,
2: say with a with
1: with with an uh, test setup that allows me to exercise the remote test capability uh, ability to set this thing up is fairly fairly simple. The problem starts happening if you have high power so depending now on a company uh, rules or regulations a 10 kilowatt type setup might be high power or or maybe a hundred kilowatt would be high power right. and there the challenge with remote testing becomes is uh, not that you can't do it but to right. ensure the safety right. should it right. be remote yeah i guess yeah, definitely are a lot of
2: challenges challenge. um, can you hear me Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. For a while
0: there, I think, Odai, we lost you for a while. Just like.
1: Yeah, I know my seconds. my uncle, pop up saying something's happening with the local internet <laughs> uh, provider over here. It looks like. So. Anyway,
0: it's almost coming to the end here. Do you? Okay, sorry. Um. Let go me, ahead. Let Uday. me
1: wrap up. Let me wrap up what I was saying here. So the the sure, challenge yeah. high powered remote testing is is how do you manage the safety? So we say that if you want to run a 200 kilowatt uh, emulator. Can you run it remotely? Absolutely. We do it all the time with our teams distributed. But if you're running it such that um, it's unsupervised, then it's a little bit of a problem. One, just from a safety perspective. Two, you still need a local presence to set up the high power connections, the high power connections, the coolant connections, and so on. So remote testing is feasible. It's possible, but you have to keep uh, safety considerations in mind. No, it's not a technical challenge it's a it's a process and the regulations challenge more than technical
0: excellent so they it's uh, coming to the end almost of the show um, the just now looking at the current situation like right, market conditions I mean you know testing is very specific like I, I can only imagine DnV electronics and maybe a handful of other companies. Who are, who are, you know, pioneers in testing, who can say safely. So, I mean, what now are the challenges that are specific to testing? And what are the market conditions that present those challenges? And, and what are the plans in, in place for future realization of those plans, uh, as
1: far as uh, you are concerned? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, so, the need doesn't go away. So we're not seeing a decrease in the need from, uh, you know, are we getting requests, are we getting um, uh, requests for quotes, are we people interested in talking and learning more? That doesn't seem to be uh, dropping. Depending on what sort of test it is, because some of these, let's say EPTs or EXL testers are, you know, several hundred thousand dollars pushing a million dollar type, type tester then obviously the current conditions are causing a slowdown in spend so they're delaying the delaying decisions is is part of what we're seeing right um, right in terms of timelines timeline yeah so if they said like hey we wanted to do it in 2020 end of 2020 that is now maybe becoming maybe middle of 2021 hmm. so that's the biggest uh, consistent sort of theme that we're seeing um hmm. on the other hand um, as EVs are beginning to see as almost a resurgence, in fact, I think uh, several of the um, consultant companies and so on, like like McKinsey's have said that I think EVs are likely to uh, see a big surge because of multiple reasons. Like you're seeing this in India right now with the push for, uh, for EV, what, what the Delhi government has done and, and, and what other, other groups are doing, recognizing the obvious value of uh, low pollution as the environment cleaned up in many places, people are realizing that, hey, maybe we need to push this uh, further faster. And so there is a push for EVs. So we are seeing a lot of requests for you know things like emulators, for example, because it allows the separation of inverted development and testing away from the motor, which was one of the yeah. things I was going to say earlier when we were talking about that in terms of component testing. The value of this also is that uh, you can test each component individually on its own timeline. Um, I don't need to get into I do not need to wait for the motor before I can test the inverter. I can test the inverter when it's ready. Then I can test the motor on its own when it's ready. So I don't have to. I can reduce the dependencies uh, that historically used to exist. So we see that EVs are probably going to continue to be a demand. So we are uh, hoping uh-huh. we can capitalize on that. The biggest thing has been to make sure that we can uh, continue to uh, build the technical solutions, the technology to be ready for it. Uh, I would think that uh, when when times are slow, that's the time to actually build up capability because you need it when the market does turn back. Absolutely. Good point. Thanks, Uday. Uday, this is my last last question. I think
2: Uh, it's more futuristic. Can you you comment on the hardware in the loop? Uh, You know, those technologies which are uh, evolving right now as well as some something called digital twins and their sure. potential to save hardware cost in test setups is there a potential i don't you really need to test at 100 amperes or that there, there is a need for that but hardware in the loop may have set place. can you comment on that absolutely
1: that's absolutely well, that's a great question Prasad, because um uh, you, you've touched upon actually one of my other uh, firm beliefs is um, virtual engineering. The idea Correct. is that virtual engineering and testing, and I'm using virtual in a very broad sense, the idea is that you should not have to do a lot of testing in vehicles. So for example, if, if, we, if I have a tractor, uh, one tractor costs hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? If I have to do a sufficient number of testing to statistically prove the, the design, that's several tractors worth of um, equipment that I need. So potentially, you know, seven-digit costs plus time and plus delays if you find something wrong at that point to go back and and, and fix it. I believe that up to 95% of the testing could be done in what I'm calling a virtual way. And the virtual way is all Mm -hmm. of the things that we've been talking about, right? Um, It's not on the final equipment, but it mimics final equipment. So emulators is one, dynos, things like that are others. Mm -hmm. And you do the right testing at the right time. So hills are very critical and play a very, very important role in this continuum. So a uh, perfect example for, from my perspective, you, you've got power electronics and you've got the power electronic controller. So the controller development of the inverter can be done in a hill setup where you're emulating the the switches. Um, no power or low power, You're not you're not actually pushing the, hundred kilowatt that the inverter is ultimately going to be capable of. But you can mimic all the operation with a hint setup and do the entire development of the controller before it even sees one real switch. And that development and testing and validation could give you almost a 90 to 95% coverage of the behavior of the of the controller. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot say that if I've done it 100 milliamps, it's the same as running at 100 amps. So you do need the the ability to actually test with real devices and real power. And this is where emulators come in. And the emulators are a continuum of hills, and as you probably know, they are called P hills, power hills, power hardware in the loop. Correct. Yeah. So now I've taken a, a low power system where I can do all the low power work, and then move on to a high power system where I can do focus on just the high power stuff. I don't necessarily need to do all the testing that I did for the controller development. I just need to do the ones that are critical and add the tests that need the power, right? Then when you go to the motor, we focus only on the tests that need the actual rotation and the impact of the rotation and so on, right? So testing, I think my personal belief is that hill testing should become part of the standard operating procedure of any engineering development especially anything to do with electrical engineering development because uh, it allows you to do um, the right level of testing at the right time uh, and, and move forward in, mm-hmm. in a in a systematic manner so um, uh, all the different hill companies that are out there opal rts of the world speed goats D space typhoon right yeah. I think i think uh, what they bring to the table is becoming more and more um, apparent to people and i think the argument of using them seems to be simpler now i, I remember 20 years ago it was a it was a, a major proposal and defense almost to leadership to allow me to buy you know hundred thousand dollars worth of these space equipment to do uh, some hill development work and uh, today, while the money is still there, the arguments don't take that long. Right. So definitely, I think, and then the potential to save is huge because if you can shift all of those testing away from a vehicle, and if I say that instead of 10 tractors, I do my final verification in one tractor, I've just saved almost a million dollars in, 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 in cost and maybe uh, you know three, four months or more in, in, in time. Uh, and in fact, there are... Plenty of studies that have shown that if you do this systematically in a, in a a systems engineering approach and using the modular uh, structure, uh, there have been cases where development time has been cut in half and along with the budget cut by almost 30, 40%. So the value of doing it is uh, unbelievable. And and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, Happy to provide more details at any time, uh, Prasad. If anybody wants, in terms of how it can do that. You yeah, mentioned the other part, right? Go ahead, Sorry. So the other thing that you mentioned, digital twin. Um, well, see, yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you. Yeah. I can, Yeah. So that's a very interesting, um, interesting development. So, um, so in case people don't know what a digital twin is, the idea behind the digital twin is that you have a three D ideally a 3d model of your equipment and on the real equipment you have your sensors and um, um, measurements that you have whatever that you need and this measurement is transmitted and brought into this 3d model so that if you're looking at the 3d model you can see physically what is happening in your equipment so let's take for example a, a, a car and the car is driving down the road your 3d model you could effectively see that okay the wheels are turning at this speed the engine temperature is this if you want to actually see the uh, the the the, uh, the cylinders move you can see the cylinders move if you want to see the braking action you can see the braking action so it can be everything from just passive data temperatures speeds mm-hmm. uh, currents voltages to active data of actually mimicking the the actual uh, driving behavior um, the Advantage of this, and I say this to people, that people think the digital twin is a brand new thing. In, in some ways, it's mm-hmm. not. If you've ever been into a factory and you've seen a SCADA display uh, right. where they show all the different uh, uh, devices and pieces of equipment and temperatures and currents and whether a valve is open or closed uh, in a, right. in a what, 2D one-line diagram, that effectively yeah. is a digital twin. The difference is now that that same thing could be represented in a more realistic 3D manner. The value of that to me is twofold. One is monitoring. Um, And more critically, it becomes valuable for um, if there's a need to look inside a system. In a 2D model, it's hard to know what's happening inside. But if you have, let's say, a motor or if you take the inverter and you actually have the um, you could act, not just see that okay there's some hot spot in the inverter you might be able to say that the hot spot is this specific igbt or this specific uh, capacitor or this specific point in the in the circuit so it allows you to pinpoint better the source of whatever might be going wrong correct monitoring is probably the most obvious value if, if let's say you're the boss um, and you're sitting remote somewhere, not on the factory floor, or not even at the uh, at the customer site. This gives you a visibility of what's happening, and, and you, you can get uh, a pretty good sense of um, you know where things are and, and, and uh, where things are going. Uh, sometimes you might be able to see something happening in the in the in the three D model that you cannot actually physically see in the in the real equipment because it's you know hidden or it's, sure. an interior, it's an interior uh, component. So I think Digital Twin is uh, going to provide some really good value insights um, as we move forward, um, and especially as the ability of IoT uh, technology to provide the um, you know, larger and larger quantities of data and for the okay. system process, that larger quantity of data becomes uh, right. more, more simple. The value of the digital twin will probably grow. Uh, my opinion. I've right. I, I seen some people talk about digital twins being used in accelerated testing and things like that. So, so they do not destroy the real component. But anyway, correct. Engineering, absolutely. Um, you can do. You can do. Um, you can. If you can sense it, you can get data out of it. You can uh, uh, model it, and you can evaluate the. The component on in, in virtual uh, world and get a fairly accurate uh, representation of this. Uh, right. To me, though, the the key part to that is uh, ultimately it's going to be driven more by the the fidelity of the physics model than anything else. Correct. Right. Uh, okay. So you 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 can you can get a good representation from some tests and then you can expand it using uh, virtual absolutely, but you're still I think. Limited by the uh, how good the physics models. Is. Yeah, correct. I think mean, there needs to be continuous uh, development on that end as well, as well. and and you're right on that one, Prasad, uh, because the as the components and the systems become more and more intertwined, right? Where you've got uh, vastly different uh, physics-based models, right? So on one hand, you've got something that is uh, uh, you know electron flow like a, like an IGBT device or or, or uh, junction behavior. At, at a more fundamental um, uh, level, yeah. and you have got uh, you know thermal issues on the other end, and they are somehow interconnected uh, and interdependent. Uh, a multi-physics type model of being able to look at the entire interaction will provide real value, both in terms of uh, you know speed of development, but to me. I think the real value it's going to provide is being able to make sure that uh, troubleshooting and uh, and, and um, verification and validation is done done appropriately. Thank you. Sheldon, do you have any more?
0: Uh, no, I, I think we are done. That's pretty much it from us.
2: So thank you Uday for, for this exciting conversation as well as dwelling so much into the future. So you brought in uh, so many important things to light uh, and what's happening currently and where the future is going for testing as well as electrification, as you mentioned, is a big theme for this uh, for this podcast. Everything is becoming more and more and more electric, which is good, of course, for our society uh, so on. So again, those are the... Uh, the, uh, the for the listeners, uh, you can get this podcast on... Uh, on any of the podcast platforms you listen to Apple Podcasts, Teacher or in uh, Spotify and Podbean and so on so wherever you listen to your podcast uh, please rate us five star and then also send us your, your comments. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.
1: Thanks Uday Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Bye-bye Megan. Thanks Prasad. Uh, thanks Megan So uh, it certainly was fun uh, Look forward to getting together once things all settle down and we can all gather in person uh- Thank Absolutely. You. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank
2: you. Bye.